Stay tuned next for Resistance Roundtable coming up right now. Welcome to Resistance Roundtable, broadcast on WPK on the second Saturday of each month, where we engage in conversation about local nationwide organizing for a more just and democratic America during this pivotal and dangerous moment in our nation's history. Hosting today's show is Ruth Ann Baumgartner, who is a longtime instructor in literature and writing at Central Connecticut State University. She's a member of the Executive Committee of the Connecticut Conference of the American Association of University Professors. Ruth also serves as a member of the Board of Directors and a theatrical director with the Westport Community Theater here in Connecticut. And Ruth Ann is here with us in the studio. Richard Hill, who's on remote location today, he's host of WPKN Show's first Tuesday rainy day radio and organic farm stand. He's also a rotating host of the program Mike Check, Richard is a longtime musician, teacher, and a mentor with Youth Radio Connecticut. Welcome, Richard. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you, Scott, and thank you, Ruthann, for holding down the fort while I, uh, uh, you know, explore these remote regions, which I'm very gratified, Scott, that you didn't reveal my exact location. <laughs> well, you told me in advance not to uh, let the folks listening know where you are. I, I, you're on submission. We don't know. Maybe we'll hear about it yeah, next I, next month. I, I don't want to endanger any of, of the uh, people that I'm working with. Yeah. All right. Well, we want to be safe, not sorry. Well, we're very fortunate today to have two uh, really interesting guests to come on on, you know, huge issues. Um We'll be joined shortly by Mel Goodman, a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy in Washington, D.C., and a former CIA analyst to talk about the ongoing war in Ukraine and the dangers of escalation and opportunities for diplomatic openings to end the conflict. Later this morning, we'll be speaking with Amanda Skinner, president and CEO of Planned Parenthood of Southern New England. She'll be joining us soon, and she'll be discussing the post-Roe versus Wade world and the current battles over access to reproductive health care and efforts to outlaw medication abortion across the U.S. So right now, I'd like to introduce our first guest, and that's uh, Mel Goodman. Mel is a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy in Washington, D.C., as I said, and an adjunct professor of international relations at Johns Hopkins University. Mel's 42-year government uh, career included tours at the Central Intelligence Agency, the Department of State and the Department of Defense National War College, where he was a professor of international security. Mel is author of many books. His titles include Failure of Intelligence, The Decline and Fall of the CIA, Containing the National Security State, and A Whistleblower at the CIA, an insider's account of the politics of intelligence. Uh, Mel, great to have you on our Saturday morning program. Thanks so much for making time for us. Pleasure's mine, Scott. Good to be with you. So I will open up to our, our panel here in a moment, but I, I thought I would open up with this question, Mel. It's just been one year since Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine, where tens of thousands have been killed, cities destroyed, and where the threat of a wider conflict looms, including Vladimir Putin's veiled threat to use nuclear weapons. China recently proposed a 12-point peace plan that was vague on specifics. And I'm wondering, as you look at the situation in Ukraine at the moment, is there any interest that you see on the part of Russia, Ukraine, and Ukraine's allies, the United States, and other Western NATO nations in engaging in any kind of serious peace talks to end this war? Well, I don't see any readiness on the part of Russia or Ukraine to enter into talks. Both seem to believe in the idea of an absolute victory, and there are too many Americans who also support the idea of absolute victory. Uh, I'm pretty confident there will be no such thing as an absolute victory. 
the Russians occupied about 15 to 18 percent of eastern Ukraine before the war started in February of uh, last year, and they still occupy about 15 to 18 percent of eastern Ukraine. I don't see Putin being willing to return Crimea. I think that is a a done deal as far as the Russians are concerned, and I think they can protect Crimea, which is predominantly occupied and inhabited by ethnic Russians to begin with. And I don't see Zelensky letting up on his demands for regaining all of the territory. So to me, the only way out is some kind of ceasefire armistice. There probably never will be a peace. It'll be much like the Korean War of the early 1950s, which had a ceasefire and armistice. There's never been a peace treaty ending the war formally. Uh, And I think that's how this region will continue to muddle through. But the idea of just completely dismissing the Chinese proposal out of hand, uh, I think, was wrong. Even Zelensky indicated he was willing uh, to pursue it, and we should have pursued it. And actually, there's a wake-up call in today's newspapers, in the New York Times, with China just engineering the reestablishment of relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia that were broken about six, seven years ago after some acts of uh, violence. So the idea of uh, ignoring any chance for diplomacy, any chance for conciliation, any chance for talks, uh, going back to what Winston Churchill once said, that jaw-jaw is better than war-war. So meanwhile, I think Putin is going to pursue essentially what is a war of state terror, Uh, I think the missiles and the drones that were used uh, yesterday in Ukraine, particularly the hypersonic uh, missile for which there's no uh, defense, apparently, uh, shows you that he is just going to try to batter the civilian population uh, in an act essentially of terrorism to convince civilians to go to their government and and sue for peace. Um, So I think the United States has to be more active in terms of quiet efforts, private efforts, to see if there's any opening possible for at least a ceasefire to stop this mindless killing. Thank you for that, Mel. Uh, Richard or Ruthann, I have a question or a comment for our guest, Mel Goodman. Well, Mel, I just, uh, I know that this is a naive question, but I wonder about it every time I watch the news and every time I read an article, and that is, is there any possibility that there's unrest among Putin's Russian supporters, and I mean the ones with, with uh, power, that, that might be brought to bear on him, or is that a lost cause? Well, I think it's a lost cause if people are going to assume that the resistance to Putin will come from the left, and he could be replaced by someone more moderate. Uh, if there's an opposition against Putin that, that will be successful, uh, my fear is it will come from the right. It will come from a group of people like uh, Prigozhin, uh, who runs the Wagner Group, uh, this mercenary force that's fighting in eastern Ukraine, that will pursue the war in a more lethal fashion than even Putin is doing, because you could argue that Putin really uh, hasn't used all of the might of uh, Russian power. Um, he's He's pursuing a policy of state terror, but there's more that could be done, and I think there are people on the right uh, who want Putin to move in that direction. The thing to keep in mind is that when Putin seized Crimea in 2014, this was overwhelmingly popular with the Russian people. It was praised by Mikhail Gorbachev. It was praised by Navalny, who's now in jail now, and probably it will be uh, killed in jail in one way or, or another. And he's still overwhelmingly popular. Uh, Russians pride themselves on their ability to make sacrifices. So we think we can adopt a policy of sanctions and increasingly apply these sanctions, and they will have some impact on the way he will wage the war. Uh, Well, I don't think that's the case. He's made some mistakes in waging this war. I think he's learned from some of them. Uh, But I don't see a more moderate, more conciliatory, more pragmatic group coming in. And Russians aren't known throughout history for their willingness to uh, challenge the established regime, the established power in in the first place. You know, there's an old Russian saying that it's the tallest shoot of grain that's the first to be cut down by the wind. So I I, I don't see that opposition leading in a direction that would be satisfactory for American interests. 
Richard Hill, you have a comment or question for our guest? Uh, yes, uh, Mel, thank you so much for your ongoing commentary and analysis, which I feast upon every time you come out with a new article or I hear you on Scott's show. So it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, I wanted you. to ask you if you agree with John Mearsheimer's analysis that Russia really never intended to occupy or conquer all of Ukraine and that their strategy is and was when they first invaded to sort of render Ukraine a rump state, dismantle it to that extent so that it really functioned as a rump state, which was incapable of posing a security risk to Russia, even if the West still pursued their ambitions to have a Ukraine join NATO. I don't go as far as uh, Mearsheimer uh, in terms of what Russian intentions were, because they didn't invade the country on on multiple fronts, which was one of the mistakes that Putin made that suggested, well, maybe they weren't going to occupy the entire country. They only had a force of about 125,000 to 150,000, which would have been inadequate for occupation of the entire country. Uh, but they certainly wanted to overthrow the government, conduct regime change, install a puppet uh, government in Kiev, and occupy uh, all of eastern uh, Ukraine. Uh, this is the policy uh, that didn't work. Um, what I think is important that the United States is going to have to acknowledge at some point is that the Russians have some significant and serious security considerations that are going to have to be addressed. Uh, what we did in the 1990s in the Clinton administration to expand NATO um, I think it was a violation, a repudiation of a guarantee, a verbal guarantee that President George H.W. Bush gave to Gorbachev and Secretary of State uh, Baker gave to uh, Edward Shevardnadze, the Soviet foreign minister at the time, that if the Russians, the Soviets at that time, got out of eastern Germany, where they had 375,000 troops, a considerable force, uh, we would not leapfrog over Germany, a reun reunited Germany in NATO. Uh, to move into Eastern Europe. And that's exactly what Clinton did in the 90s with Poland, the Czech Republic, and Slovakia and Hungary, and that's what George W. Bush did in bringing in three Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. And if it hadn't been for Angela Merkel's phone calls uh, to uh, Bush, he would have moved more aggressively to bring Georgia and Ukraine into NATO. So there is a security consideration here. And what Putin is now facing is, is actually um, a more dangerous security situation because two new states are going to soon join NATO um, if Turkey doesn't block uh, Finland and, and Sweden. Uh, the United States now has a military base essentially in Poland, and we've sent an elite airborne force into Romania to be more aggressive in the Black Sea area. Um, Putin... Putin wouldn't allow this. I don't think any Russian leader would allow this. Ukraine has been the traditional invasion route uh, to Russia, whether it was Sweden's Charles Twelfth in the 18th century or Napoleon in the 19th century or Adolf Hitler, of course, in the 20th century. And I think we were uh, wrongheaded in ignoring Putin's references to uh, the NATO provocation, the U.S. provocation. And now he's selling the war to his own populace on the basis of not fighting Ukraine or in Ukraine, but he's fighting NATO. He's fighting the United States. He's fighting for Russian national security. And Russia is a national security state. It always has been. Um, so at some point, we, we were going we to have to uh, grapple with this idea of of what signals can we give to Russia to convince Putin that it's worth entering talks in the first place? Because it's going to be more than a uh, struggle between Ukraine and Russia. It's a wider struggle now with risk of escalation. Thank you for that, Mel. We're speaking with Mel Goodman this morning on Resistance Roundtable. Mel is a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy in Washington and an adjunct professor of international relations at Johns Hopkins University. Mel uh, some 40 years as a career uh, intelligence officer at the CIA and other places. Uh, Mel, I did want to ask you about Russian President Vladimir Putin's uh, announcement recently that he was suspending uh, Russia's participation in the New START nuclear arms treaty. The last U.S.-Russia arms control agreement left after uh, 
and this was after George W. Bush withdrew from the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty and Trump's withdrawal from both the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Agreement and the Open Skies Treaty, as you recently wrote about, or will soon have an editorial to discuss in more depth. It, it seems that as a result of this Ukraine war, on the nuclear arms front, uh, the world's a much more dangerous place now with the prospect of a dangerous and expensive new Cold War-style nuclear arms race. What, what are your concerns about that, Mel? Well, my major concern is we're seeing uh, the demise of arms control and disarmament. And again, I go back to Bill Clinton um, because his national security policies were so uh, overrated. Uh, the advance, the expansion of NATO was wrong, but also he abolished the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency because of pressure from uh, the right, from Jesse Helms in the Senate and Newt Gingrich uh, in the House. So we lost a professional class of uh, experts who knew all of the arcane issues of arms control and disarmament. And what's interesting about Putin's announcement, he didn't withdraw from the New START, which is set to expire in 2026. Uh, which has set the current ceiling of about 1,550 warheads uh, in and American arsenals. He announced suspension, which means he's holding out the possibility of resuming these dis- discussions. Whereas, as you mentioned, with uh, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, we abrogated it without cause. Uh, and if you go back to the ABM Treaty, and I was the intelligence advisor to the SALT delegation in Vienna in 1971 and 72, the ABM Treaty clearly says you can withdraw from the treaty, but you, you have to cite reasons. George W. Bush never cited any reasons. Of course, we knew what his reason was. He wanted to invest in national missile defense. Uh, this is an entire waste of uh, resources, uh, because once you have a defense, and of course we have one that doesn't work, uh, then you can argue, well, you need more weaponry. Uh, we see what the Russians are doing with their hypersonic missiles now that uh, fly five times uh, the speed of sound. Uh, there's no defense for uh, that weapon. And because we have a defense, Putin can justify building more offensive uh, weaponry. And the same goes for Trump. He totally abrogated the INF Treaty, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, which destroyed more missiles and actually an entire class of medium-range missiles in Europe than any other arms treaty ever ever negotiated uh, in history. And, op- and withdrawing from the Open Skies Treaty, um, which gave a little more intelligence material, not so much to the United States, but to the 30 European members of the Open Skies Treaty uh, that relied on this information from overflight of uh, Russia. Uh, so I think in announcing a suspension, uh, he's holding out the possibility that uh, the talks can be resumed at some point. But the thing that bothers me about the Biden administration uh, is there's no arms control expert within the national security team. Uh, there's still some excellent experts out there, people like uh, Rose Gottmuller, uh, who teaches at Stanford, who is a veteran of arms control uh, negotiations. Uh, and I assume she would have a place in this administration. But there's no arms control expert on the national security team. And the Biden team essentially is an exercise in groupthink on so much of its foreign policy, particularly with regard to China, where I think we're pursuing a Cold War strategy of containment instead of giving Xi Jinping a reason to think that it's worthwhile to engage the United States in talks. Mm. Thank you for that, Mel. Ruth Ann, I have a question for I'm, I'm just Mel. thinking about the upcoming elections in the United States and how much um, po- posturing and serious, possibly serious negotiating um, will be going on uh, that affect our relationship with the world and specifically in this case with the situation in Ukraine and our relationships with Russia and possibly China. Um, how, how much can we... Can the election and the campaigning, how much damage can it do to any negotiations that might be going on? It can do a lot. Uh, For one thing, the only bipartisan uh, approach to anything in national security policy, or actually domestic policy or foreign policy for that matter, is to keep pressure on China. We've seen the formation of a House Select 
committee to discuss only issues dealing with China. We're seeing various committees introduce bills uh, that are justified by our opposition to China. Uh, the excellent bill that Biden produced on the semiconductors and, and enhancing the American production of semiconductors, that was billed as an anti-Chinese uh, weapon. That's the only thing that seems to unite Democrats uh, and Republicans. And this is being used, this Cold War 2.0, uh, with regard to China, to justify greater military spending. And we already spend as much as the rest of the world combined. We keep hearing a figure of $860 billion on defense. Well, that's just the Pentagon's <laughs> budget. The defense budget has to include the Department of Energy because of its role in terms of monitoring nuclear weapons uh, and developing nuclear weapons. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security has a significant defense component. That's where the Coast Guard uh, is housed. If you look at the intelligence community, 70 to 80 percent of that budget uh, goes toward intelligence for the warfighter. So when I add up defense spending uh, in this country, I get a figure of about $1.2 trillion, which equals the amount of spending uh, in the rest of the world. Um, so all, all of this will be worsened, and I think what we're going to see is the parties and then the candidates uh, compete with each other on who will spend more on defense and who will be more uh, anti-China uh, in American national security policy. Mm. I think if we want friction with China and a crisis and, God forbid, a confrontation with China, it would be a self-fulfilling prophecy, because I don't think Xi Jinping is looking for that. Xi Jinping has been very successful in national security policy uh, by pursuing global stability, and we've ignored that. And I th I'm hoping that today's headlines will be a wake-up call that it was Beijing who engineered uh, a reestablishment of relations that very few people saw coming between uh, the Shiite state in Iran and the Sunni state in, in Saudi Arabia. So I think it should be a wake-up call to Israel, which now has tremendous domestic problems that are getting in the way of uh, sanity on all sorts of issues. And it should be a wake-up call to our State Department, where we have a Secretary of State who I think is uh, pursuing a policy of containment toward both Russia and China. And this notion of dual containment, to me, makes no sense whatsoever. For one thing, you can't contain China. China is not like the former Soviet Union. It's a powerful state in terms of politics, in terms of economics, in terms of its military. Uh, the Soviet Union was essentially uh, a nuclear power that w was an extremely weak state internationally because it didn't have a major role in international economics or global security in terms of peace deals that were being announced in the Middle East and, and uh, Africa. Uh, China is involved. I just came back from uh, a glorious two weeks in Costa Rica, and we rode, of course, at some point on the Pan American Highway, which was built by the United States, the Eisenhower administration, in the 1950s. Well, now all of the major road construction uh, is being sponsored and paid for and engineered by China. Mm. Uh, the major uh, soccer stadium in San Jose was built by uh, China. There are other important uh, projects that they're doing in Costa Rica, and they're doing all over South America and all over Africa as part of the new uh, Belt and Road Initiative, the new Silk Road, uh, that we don't read enough about, that I think the mainstream media in this country uh, is ignoring. Uh, we say we want to compete with China. China's actually out there competing with the United States, and they're doing so quite successfully. Uh, and I, again, I don't want to dwell on this point of... Uh, of uh, China's role with the uh, reestablishment of relations between Ir Iran and Saudi Arabia. But I think this is a very important development. Mm. Thank you for that, Mel. Uh, Richard, did you have a, a question for Mel? Yes. I guess I wanted to turn back to Ukraine for just a moment, but I think your response, Mel, would probably also bring in the U.S. foreign policy toward China as well. But the question I have is, uh, what do you think the United States' uh, geopolitical goals are in pushing 
cheerleading and arming Ukraine to the extent that it has to fight for total victory instead of seeking a negotiated settlement in the conflict. I mean, I think from the beginning, I was alarmed that the United States immediately eschewed any effort to negotiate and began pumping billions now to the extent, I believe, of $100 billion of military aid into Ukraine. I'm wondering, what is the strategic goal behind all this? Well, I don't know if there's ever been a full uh, consultation or a substantive dialogue, say, at the National Security Council uh, level. Uh, Jake Sullivan, to be the National Security Advisor, hasn't been that active in that regard. Uh, So what I think has happened through a policy of drift and a series of incremental uh, measures on the part of our military aid uh, is that we've come around to support uh, Ukraine's goal of victory. And it's interesting to me that, once again, it's the military warning the administration that there isn't going to be absolute victory. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, has made that very clear on several occasions. And I I know from my own uh, contacts and sources from 18 years of teaching at the National War College uh, that the military is quite worried about the Biden foreign policy and particularly the idea of dual containment. Uh, I took part in a lot of war games when I was at the Central Intelligence Agency and the National War College that revolved around Taiwan. We lost all of those war games. Uh, Resupplying uh, Ukraine is not a great logistical uh, challenge for us because of all the neighboring states that are supportive of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, Re-equipping and resupplying Taiwan would be almost an impossible uh, task. Uh, so instead of, enc- again, encouraging the notion of uh, talks uh, of at least a ceasefire, uh, we're continuing to throw more weaponry in there. Now, to some extent, we're compelled to do so because of the way Putin is fighting this war, which, again, I consider uh, an immoral war based on state terror rather than uh, conventional military campaigns. On a conventional level, Putin has essentially lost the war. Turned back from Kiev, turned back from Kherson, turned back from Kharkiv, the the multi-invasion routes that he adopted unwisely at the beginning of this war. Um, He's shown an inability to conduct uh, a combined arms campaign that uses the Army and the Air Force and, and the Navy. The, the Russian military just isn't that sophisticated, and I think they're the victims of their own corruption, which has been a trademark of the rest of Russian society. And there's no reason to think it wouldn't be a compromise situation for the military uh, as well. But I think we have to s- signal to Putin that there's some reason to engage in talks. There's something at, at the end of any uh, a conversation or dialogue that will f- provide something for Putin. I'm not saying there's a direct um, um, model for this, but the Cuban Missile Crisis, when everyone was advising John F. Kennedy to pursue a surgical strike or military arms uh, or direct confrontation with the Soviet Union, it was a former ambassador to the Soviet Union by the name of Llewellyn Thompson who said, if you give uh, some kind of uh, exit route off-ramp to Khrushchev, uh, he will remove his missiles, and of course that's we, what we did secretly in agreeing to take our missiles out of Turkey, something we didn't learn about in, in terms of the American public, didn't learn about for about 25 years. Um, and I'm saying for Russia's uh, interests, they're going to have to be certain national security guarantees, including no role for Ukraine in NATO, an end to rotating German troops through the Baltics, you know, imagine how unsatisfactory this is from a Russian standpoint uh, with memories of Hitler in the 1940s, and now they're seeing Germans rotating regularly through Estonia, Lithuania, uh, and Latvia. So I think there's a lot more to talk about than I see discussed in the mainstream media or any of the uh, political magazines that I try to keep up with. Could I just follow up on that by asking... Sure. Do you think Russia would be satisfied or placated if they were able to secure the Donbass region and also to create that land bridge to Crimea, thus creating a buffer against NATO, were Ukraine ever to actually join NATO? Well, I think uh, if Russia could have some kind of um, uh, position of influence in 
eastern Ukraine, in the Donbass. So remember, that's populated to a great extent also by ethnic Russians. Uh, you know, Russians and ethnics and Ukrainians have intermarried over uh, the years. Uh, it's wrong for Putin to deny a Ukraine or to deny there's such a thing as Ukrainians, which he did in the speech he gave only months before uh, the invasion uh, in February 2022. Uh, but he's going to want some security guarantees uh, on the border and in terms of some kind of uh, land bridge to Crimea. Uh, the question now, would Zelensky ever accept that? And probably there would be too much pressure on uh, uh, Zelensky to say that Ukrainians have paid too much of a price already to give up the territory that they've been fighting for. So I think both sides are locked in, and you need some kind of outside mediation. And the United States has walked from away from this possible role by not having any dialogue with Russia whatsoever. Uh, Blinken hasn't kept up a dialogue with the foreign minister, Lavrov. Uh, you don't have contacts between uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and his uh, counterparts, or say General Gerasimov uh, in Russia. And, and the fact that there isn't that's this kind of consultation, I think, works against any kind of uh, discussion of, is there a way out of this mess? Because I don't see a victory, as I said earlier. This, you know, this idea of an absolute victory, uh, I remind people, maybe they ought to watch the, the German remaking of All Quiet on the Western Front that's up for an Academy Award uh, on, on Sunday night, and look at the trench warfare, uh, which developed within a year after the start of World War I and assigned so many people to, uh, to death without being able to even defend themselves. Well, I think the Ukrainian-Russian front is pointing in the same direction. We're, we're going to see trench warfare and no real changes. Look at the struggle over Bakhmut, which is not a strategic center. Uh, there have been heavy losses on both sides. Ukraine's, Ukrainians have even acknowledged that, and so have the Russians. Uh, so I don't, at this point, I don't know what they're fighting for. And I think that often happens in, in warfare. You lose sight of what the original goals were uh, when you invaded in the first place. And, of course, we always maintain that Putin's invasion was unprovoked. Well, I don't think uh, that's a reasonable either. Here's where I also agree with Mir Sharmer to a certain extent. There was a provocation. Uh, NATO expansion was a provocation. Putting a regional missile system in Poland and Romania was a provocation. Uh, ex ex expanding right up to the borders, now bringing in Finland, which will double the length of the border between the NATO states and Russia, that's certainly a provocation. So instead of looking for a way out, some kind of off-ramp, we're, we're creating uh, greater issues for Putin to be concerned with. Um, and that's, that's no way to end this struggle. Well, Mel, thank you so much for uh, spending time with us this morning. Uh, you, just, you just bring a wealth of uh, your experience yeah. and information from your years at the CIA. I'm afraid it's a wealth of pessimistic news and information. <laughs> true, I apologize for that. Well, we're, we're going to look forward to having you back on this show and, and my program on Monday night to talk more about the China issue. As you said, there was this breakthrough with renewal of diplomatic relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which is groundbreaking and has to be looked at. So we'll, we'll stay in touch, Mel. Thanks so, so much for, again, spending time with our audience this morning. Thank you, Scott, Richard, Ruthann. I certainly enjoyed it. All right. Take care. So that was Mel Goodman, Senior Fellow at the Center for International Policy in Washington, D.C., and Adjunct Professor of International Relations at Johns Hopkins University. I'm going to get on the phone and, and call our next guest. If uh, Ruth Ann and Richard, you'd like to talk amongst yourself for a moment while we get our guest. What do you want to talk about, Richard? Well, I, I cannot talk about my remote location, so don't, don't even ask me. Oh, right? no. Right. I it's, thought I could get it out of you. I'm not going to make a mistake on that one. <laughs> After hearing Mel Goodman talk about this, and as he said, unload a lot of wisdom, but also creating a pretty pessimistic picture. What What are your thoughts on on the situation now? Has it have they changed <laughs> based on Mel's uh, commentary? Well, I I certainly am. Um, I don't want to say heartened by his emphasis on the uh, on the need for informed and and vigorous negotiation because it doesn't look as if we're going to get it. But um, 
I've been wondering too the the likelihood that if the Republicans gain control of the presidency, there's going to be negotiation going forward. I think is e- even more slim than it is right now. Um, but I'm frustrated that uh, with all the seemingly smart people Biden has uh, at his disposal to work with, there hasn't been much smartness coming uh, coming f- from that direction either. Well, I think I mentioned this in the past when we've spoken on this show, but perhaps just person to person, is that I did a, an interview with Henry Lowendorf. The title of the segment was Heaven and Hell, Biden's mm-hmm. Domestic Policy versus His Foreign Policy. And, uh, you know, we went through many of the very cool things that Biden supported and achieved in his, his first few couple of years. But on the foreign policy front, he's just continued a sort of wrongheaded approach, heavy-handed slog toward disaster in the name of American empire. You know, and so the reason I asked the question, Amel, you know, what, what are the U.S. strategic goals in cheerleading this war into the complete dismantling and, and destruction of Ukraine? It does appear that the United States is just pursuing that same concept. You know, we're in a cold war with Russia again, and now we have to, uh, you know, battle them right up to there, try to make it all the way to Moscow. (laughs) I don't know. You know, that's how I read the situation now. It is pretty depressing that Biden and his team are not, you know, pressing for negotiations. Well, turning the page, uh, we have our guest on the line. That's uh, Amanda Skinner. Amanda Skinner is president and CEO of Planned Parenthood of Southern New England. She's a nurse midwife, spent 10 years in clinical practice as a nurse midwife, serving for four years as the chair of the Connecticut chapter of the American College of Nurse Midwives. During her tenure, she led a major legislative effort that ensured increased access to care for women in Connecticut, expanded the scope of practice for nurse midwives, and provided liability protection for collaborating physicians. Amanda, thanks so much for making time to come on our program, Resistance Roundtable, this morning. Hi, good morning, everybody. So, Amanda, I just wanted to, first of all, ask you to talk a a bit about your work at Planned Parenthood of Southern New England, including family planning and reproductive health care services that are provided to women across uh, both Connecticut and Rhode Island. Um. Right. Well, so Planned Parenthood of Southern New England is one of 49 Planned Parenthood affiliates across the country, um, and our service area covers Connecticut and Rhode Island, as you said. Um, and as an organization, um, we are a healthcare provider, we are an educator, and we are an advocate. So we're the leading provider of sexual and reproductive health care services in our communities. We're the leading sex, uh, sexual and reproductive health educator in our communities. And we invest in advocacy that ensures uh, access to care for the patients, people, and communities that we serve. We have 14 health centers across Connecticut, and we provide comprehensive sexual and reproductive health care services to over 50,000 patients in Connecticut at those health centers. Um, And when people think about Planned Parenthood, um, it's important for them to think about the fullness of all of the services we provide. We are an abortion provider and we are very proud to provide abortion care to our patients. Um, But we can also, we also provide a whole host of healthcare services. We provide primary care at some of our health centers, comprehensive primary care at some, limited primary care services at all of them. You can come to Planned Parenthood for a sinus infection and your pap smear all at once. We provide vaccinations like uh, human papillomavirus vaccinations and hepatitis B vaccinations. We provide flu vaccines. We uh, provide health care for uh, endometriosis. We provide cancer screenings, STI and HIV testing and treatment. We provide gender-affirming hormone therapy to our patients. Um, and when we think about how people can access our care, they can come into a health center to access that care. And for some services, people can access our care through telehealth. But like I said, we're also an educator. We provide health education in schools. We work with young people um, to empower them with information as uh, peer sex educators. We also work with community-based organizations and we provide services online. So we actually provide virtual programming for sexual and reproductive health education as well. 
And then, as I mentioned, uh, we are also an advocate and do a lot of work in advancing uh, policy in our communities. Well, thanks for providing a really full picture of what Planned Parenthood does. I, I, I don't think, well, I'm speaking for myself and probably many listeners weren't aware of all that services, all those services were provided. I know that Planned Parenthood nationally has faced a lot of challenges since the Supreme Court overturned the 1973 Roe v. Wade ruling. But it, it seems clear now, Amanda, that many Republican politicians at both the state and federal level want to outlaw abortion in all 50 states. And more recently, 21 Republican-controlled states are threatening pharmacies with lawsuits if they sell abortion medications, which is the method used by more than half of the nation's abortions. Walgreens' drugstore chain appeared to cave in to those threats recently and stated they refused to sell abortion pills in those 21 states, Mm -hmm. even states where these drugs remain legal. Uh, Could this effort, from your perspective here in Connecticut and Rhode Island, could this effort and, and a pending federal judge's decision in Texas on the legality of abortion drugs take away women's access to abortion medications in all 50 states, including here in Connecticut and Rhode Island? Well, I think, you know, first of all, uh, as you noted, anti-abortion activists are not stopping at the overturn of Roe versus Wade. That was a significant victory for them, um, decades in the making as they chipped away and uh, found new and creative ways to attack abortion access across the country. Um, And I want to note how deeply rooted in misogyny, uh, racism, um, uh, and sort of anti-poverty these uh, anti-abortion activists' uh, actions and policies are when you look at Planned Parenthood patients. A more, majority of our patients are BIPOC. 85% of our patients live at or below 250% of the federal poverty level. Those uh, policies that are being advanced that restrict access to abortion, that restrict access or, or completely eliminate access to abortion, that restrict or eliminate access to people being able to have agency over their own bodies and lives, most deeply impact and most harm people who already struggle to access health care in this country, people who are already marginalized in a variety of ways. And so the harm that is caused by these is so significant and so impactful um, and, again, so sort of deeply rooted in uh, racism and misogyny. So, yeah, first I had to say that. So, so yes, uh, they will not stop. They are clearly uh, relentlessly uh, pursuing every avenue to uh, wholly eliminate access to abortion. Um, and the Mifepristone lawsuit is just another example of that. Um, and this would be devastating for people across the country. Uh, if we believe, as I do, that people should have full autonomy and decision-making about their bodies, that includes if they are choosing to have an abortion, how they have that abortion, and that people deserve to be able to make that decision for themselves. And restricting access to a drug that has been in use for 20 years, has been used by more than 5 million people, is demonstrably safer than Tylenol, is purely politically motivated, and has absolutely nothing to do with safety in healthcare. Mm. Um, and as you noted also, uh, you know, these politicians are directing their attacks uh at pharmacies like Walgreens, and there are pharmacies like Walgreens who are caving to those demands and caving to those threats, even in states where medication abortion is legal, um, because of the threats from those politicians. Once again, making so clear that this is politically motivated and has nothing to do uh, with thinking about uh, people's health or safety, about people being able to access health care that they deserve to be able to access, and that is, in fact, legal in their states. Um, so, and again, just creates another barrier to care for people who struggle to access it already. Our co-host, uh, Ruth Ann Bobgardner, I believe is a comment or question for you. I think if I can, if I can put it together, because I've just been, my synapses have been firing very fast while you, while you spoke. But it, it seems to me that, that the um, flag of uh, the sacred embryo uh, has been flying over just about every cause that the South decided to secede from the North about, and uh, every and so many aspects of life that we thought were on a on a positive um, trend for resolving into a 
constructive and collaborative society. They they seem to be making war on integration. They seem to be making war on uh, anybody struggling out of poverty. They seem to be making war on access to education or to many other things that you lose access to if you walk around pregnant uh, when you hadn't planned to be pregnant. The, the war on the poor, all of this seems to be using that that little embryo as its soldier or its flag uh, in order to carry on, uh, if I sound paranoid, maybe I am, a clandestine civil war. Uh, I don't know, stop me. <laughs> Do you want to respond to that or just just uh, tell me to shut up? <laughs> well, well, I certainly wouldn't tell you to shut up. What <laughs> so, uh, uh, Here's what I think. I think uh, all... Um, you know, so many of uh, these policies and efforts are, in fact, tied together um, and ultimately uh, contribute systemically to perpetuating poverty, to perpetuating oppression, um, to perpetuating uh, people, you know, not being able to, you know, fully engage in and control their own lives and futures. It's hard for me to imagine what could possibly motivate um, people to desire policies that would constrain people's ability to live full and free lives. Um, but that, that does seem to, to be the case. Um, uh, I also think that, you know, we uh, live um, uh, in a society that is uh, steeped with, uh, you know, sort of systemic uh, issues, some that we don't even see, some that we participate in and we aren't even conscious of uh, that contribute to, um, uh, you know, racist policies being enacted, misogynistic policies being enacted. Um, and, uh, you know, as we... Um, as we work at Planned Parenthood, we endeavor to do our work. Uh, we we are a sexual and reproductive health and rights organization. We're a healthcare provider, educator, advocate. We try to do our work with a reproductive justice lens that really uh, identifies the intersectional impact um, and the impacts on the lives of the patients and communities that we serve. And that as we advance work on policies that we attempt to advance, we are really working to sort of root out those um systemic barriers that are placed uh, in people's way, uh, things that perpetuate discrimination and try to dismantle those barriers, um, you know, undermine those efforts at discrimination and create more opportunities for people to be able to to access full dominion over their lives. Thank you for that, Amanda. Our co-host Richard Hill, I believe, has a comment or question. I just wanted to get your thoughts on, on the political fallout from these guerrilla tactic successes that the uh, anti-abortion movement has had and continues to promulgate. But I'm wondering, you know, what do you think the political fallout for, for this will be? I mean, even in so-called red states, the, the numbers seem to point to a large majority of people that want access to abortion. I just can't figure out how the Republican Party is going to assimilate this and still wave the banner of the, you know, as Ruth Ann said, the embryo and the gun, I guess, <laughs> those things, and, and have political have a political future. Well, I think, if you're, first of all, you're 100% correct. It's absolutely right. Uh, people want to be able to make their own decisions. When you ask people, you know, about who should be able to make the decision about their own body and about a pregnancy, overwhelmingly, um, Universally, no matter where we do this research, no matter where we ask the question, um, you know, whichever communities we're in, overwhelmingly, people want to be able to have the right to make decisions about their health care and their bodies between themselves and their health care providers. They don't want politicians inserted in those decisions. Um, and that includes abortion. And again, it's overwhelming. Routinely, over 70% of Americans want to be able to make their own decisions and believe that abortion should be legal and a decision between a person and their health care provider and not a decision that a politician makes on, on another person's part. Um, as I said, it's, it's sort of hard for me to, to imagine um, what could possibly then uh, motivate uh, politicians to, to not want to uh, act in accordance with their constituents' perspectives. They are hired to represent us when they are elected, right? That's that's what we do. Um, but I think the fact is that, um, you know, we often see a discordance between um, 
political motivation um, and what builds base and what is actually in the interest of of the people and what is uh, sort of more broadly uh, in in the uh, sort of uh, perspective and voice of constituencies. Um, Because, again, this is clearly politically motivated maneuvering um, as opposed to rooted in what their constituents want or what is actually in the interest of people's health care and health and well-being or even a healthy community or healthy society. Mm-hmm. Well, I wanted to uh, ask this question, Amanda, and it's it's quite obvious now that many states across the country are moving to criminalize abortion. A woman in South Carolina has been arrested and charged for allegedly trying to induce her own abortion after using medication. A Texas man, this is just yesterday, a Texas man whose ex-wife terminated her pregnancy is suing three women who assisted her under the state's wrongful death statute. The first such case brought uh, since Texas adopted a near total ban on abortion last summer. I guess the question is, with all these threats looming in states around the country, there may be maybe a false feeling of security here in Connecticut and the New England states that uh, were somehow protected from these radical uh, policies that deny women's uh, access to abortion or even just basic reproductive health care. And we've heard the threats against even contraception. What can people do locally, in your view, to to combat what's happening all around us? Yeah. Well, first of all, I do want to say we are incredibly proud um, of the work that we have done here in Connecticut and incredibly grateful for our uh, partners, uh, our community partners, um, other organizations that we work with in Connecticut, the people in our communities who have stood up and showed up at rallies and made their voices heard, um, and our legislative champions in Connecticut who have worked really hard to um create an environment in Connecticut. And Connecticut has been a leader in this. Uh, you know, we codified the tenets of Roe versus Wade into Connecticut law uh, more than 30 years ago. And just this past year, uh, in the prior legislative session, we were able to make the first um, revisions to our uh, abortion, most significant revisions to our abortion law in Connecticut um, in in a generation to modernize the law, modernize the language of the law to reflect, you know, a fuller and more complete uh, understanding of, of gender and who can become pregnant Amanda, um, and to expand access to care. So I did just want to say thank you to, to the people of Connecticut. Now, that being said, what can people do? I Amanda, I just want to interrupt because we only have about 30 seconds left, if you could. Oh, sure. Yeah. So. People can uh, follow us on social media. They can follow at Planned Parenthood of Southern New England on social media. They can sign up for action alerts with us. They can show up at rallies. They can testify in hearings. It's a legislative session now. If they don't want to testify themselves, they can submit written testimony to advance policies that support comprehensive sexual and reproductive health care and access to care. One of the most important things people can do to support Planned Parenthood is actually come to Planned Parenthood for care. So one of the ways that people can really help support us is come to us as your health care provider. I described all of the services we provide. Um, young people can engage with us through our education program. And, and I'm sorry, we'll, sure we'll have to leave you. it there, Amanda. Thanks. That's uh, Amanda Skinner. Amanda Skinner is president and CEO of Planned Parenthood of Southern New England. She's a nurse midwife, spent 10 years in clinical practice as a nurse midwife, serving for four years as the chair of the Connecticut chapter of the American College of Nurse Midwives.